not, if you have a Bible this morning and you would like to read along with us, we're going to take a kind of lengthy scripture reading this morning from the book of Second Chronicles chapter 20. The book of Second Chronicles chapter 20. And this is a story. That's why the reading will be so lengthy this morning. Um, it's 30 verses long. And so... We're going to begin reading in verse 1 of Second Chronicles chapter 20, and we'll try to read quickly this morning and hopefully express some of these important truths that are found here in this example for us. It says this in verse 1, Second Chronicles chapter 20. It came to pass after this also that the children of Moab and the children of Ammon... And with them other beside the Ammonites came against Jehoshaphat to battle. Then there came some that told Jehoshaphat, saying, There cometh a great multitude against thee from beyond the sea on this side of Syria. And behold, they be in Hazazon Tamar, which is in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord, and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. Even out of all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the congregation of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, art not thou God in heaven? And rulest not thou over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And in thy hand is there not power and might so that none is able to withstand thee? Art not thou our God? Who didst drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel, and gave us to the seed of Abraham thy friend forever? And they dwelt therein, and have built thee a sanctuary wherein for thy name saying, If when evil cometh upon us as the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we stand before this house, and in thy presence for thy name is in this house, and cry unto thee in our affliction, then thou wilt hear and help. And now, behold, the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom thou wouldest not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, but they turned from them and destroyed them not. Behold, I say, how they reward us to come to cast us out of thy possession, which thou hast given us to inherit. O our God, will thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. And all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. Then upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Madaniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, came the Spirit of the Lord in the midst of the congregation. And he said, Hearken ye all Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem, and thou, King Jehoshaphat. Thus saith the Lord unto you, Be not afraid, nor dismayed by reasons of this great multitude. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, go ye down against them. Behold, they come up by the cliff of Ziz, and ye shall find them at the end of the brook, before the wilderness of Jeruel. Ye shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand ye still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Fear not, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them. For the Lord will be with you. And Jehoshaphat bowed, excuse me, and Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground. 
and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the children of the Kohathites and of the children of the Korhites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a loud voice on him on high. And they rose up early in the morning and went forth into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went forth, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, so shall ye be established. Believe his prophets, so shall ye prosper. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed singers unto the Lord, and that should praise the beauty of holiness, as they went out before the army, and to say, Praise the Lord, for his mercy endureth forever. And when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushments against the children of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, which were come against Judah, and they were smitten. For the children of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, utterly to slay and destroy them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, everyone helped to destroy another. And when Judah came towards the watchtower in the wilderness, they looked under the multitude, and behold, they were dead bodies fallen to the earth, and none escaped. And when Jehoshaphat and his people came to take away the spoil of them, they found among them in abundance both riches and the dead bodies and precious jewels which they stripped off for themselves, more than they could carry away. And they were three days in gathering of the spoil, it was so much. And on the fourth day they assembled themselves in the valley of Barakah, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore the name of the same place was called the valley of Barakah unto this day. Then they returned, every man of Judah and Jerusalem, and Jehoshaphat in the forefront of them, to go against to Jerusalem with joy. For the Lord had made them to rejoice over their enemies. And they came to Jerusalem with psalteries and harps and trumpets unto the house of the Lord. And the fear of God was on all the kingdoms of those countries, when they had heard that the Lord fought against the enemies of Israel. So the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest round about. That'll conclude our reading this morning. I appreciate you uh, following along and hopefully uh, we're able to follow some of the storyline of that um, story we just read for you. Our title this morning, uh, though there are so many great things about this text and so many lessons that could be learned from here, um, our title is going to be drawn from verse 12 of our scripture reading this morning. Verse 12 reads this, O our God, will thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. The title of our message this morning is drawn from the last phrase, Our eyes are upon the Lord. Our eyes are upon the Lord. Before we jump right into the scripture reading, though we will uh, go down through some of these verses and point some things out to you this morning, I'd like to give you just a brief background to this whole text because I think it really brings out even in more clarity the importance of what's going on here. This is approximately 70 years after Solomon was the king. So if you remember, Saul was the first king of Israel. We read that in 1 Samuel. The first number of chapters is when we are introduced to Saul. Uh, After Saul disobeyed God on a number of occasions and began to serve himself, God removed him from that position or at least removed his divine presence or approval over Saul. And David became king. And the Bible teaches us that David was a man after God's own heart. 
And God honored him greatly. And, and David desired to build a temple to the Lord. Uh, but the Bible tells us that David was a king of blood. He was one who had to fight to protect Israel from all of their surrounding nations. And so God did not permit him to be this king of blood and also the king that built the temple. And so he did promise him, though, that he would allow his son to build the temple. And his son's name was Solomon. Solomon built the temple of the Lord, and that's actually referenced here, and we'll get to that here in a few moments, what one of the uh, prayers that, in the midst of this prayer, Jehoshaphat refers to that time when Solomon built the temple, and he went in and he dedicated that. After Solomon was the king, we find that Israel was forever changed. Uh, They divided. And so from that point forward, anytime we read about Israel, we're reading about technically a part of those people. The northern part. So if you were to look at a map, you would see Israel was the northern part. And there were ten tribes that were part of that group. And then there was the southern part. And that was Judah. And they had two, um, for the most part, they had two tribes that were a part of them. And so for the remainder of Israel's history, while they were a separate people, they were actually two different kingdoms. And Israel, for the entirety of all their kings for 400 years or more, had evil kings. Judah went back and forth. At times they had good kings that honored the Lord, and at times they had evil kings. Now, Jehoshaphat rises to power when he's middle-aged. And part of what he had done is he had tried to make friendship or a league with Israel. So he's Judah's king, and he's wanting to make a friendship with Israel, but The king at that time is a well-known king for his wickedness, and the king's name was Ahab. And so what they did is, and it was common, has been common up until just the last number of centuries. They would marry off family members to build this unified kingdom. And so that's what Jehoshaphat does. He marries someone in his family, it doesn't tell us who, to build this coordinated league or allies with King Ahab. So one day, Jehoshaphat travels to... Israel. He's sitting in the capital, which was then called Samaria. And as they're sitting there, Ahab says, will you come and fight with me against my enemy? And he agrees to do that. And God is very displeased with Jehoshaphat because Ahab was a very wicked king. He had set up the, he had changed the religion of Israel He had set up idols all throughout Israel. And almost everything that God wanted done, Ahab did the opposite. Ahab's name is synonymous with evil. And yet Jehoshaphat, at a young man's age, he comes and he joins to Ahab. And he helps him to fight against them. Now, these events play out. Ahab ends up dying in battle. Jehoshaphat is spared. Jehoshaphat travels back to Judah. And in the chapter before what we read to you, Jehoshaphat begins to get his house in order or the kingdom in order. He is one and actually in chapter 19, a prophet comes to him and he says, why did you make a league with evil men? Do you not know that God would punish you for that? And yet he continues and says, despite that, I know that there is good in your heart that you have set yourself to truly seek after the Lord. 
And for that reason, God will bless you if you pursue God in that manner. And so we read this brief chapter in chapter 19, and essentially what it amounts to is Jehoshaphat systematically setting his house in order. And things are beginning to go well. And so when it tells us in chapter 20, verse 1, it came to pass after this. That's kind of an important thing to know what transpired before this. And so what we can know before this is that Jehoshaphat, having made a mistake in making leagues with Ahab, has now pursued and begun to strive to do what is right. He is trying to serve the Lord in the integrity of his heart. And even the prophet points out that that was perceivably the desire of Jehoshaphat's heart. And as things are getting in order, it comes to pass that a messenger comes to Jehoshaphat and the whole tone of his life begins to change. Or immediately he learns of this situation that is unfolding that is of a dire nature. Now, what the messenger says is in Engedi, so I don't know how many familiar you are with the geography of Israel even to this day or at that time, but Jerusalem is about 25 miles from where these people landed on the coast of the Dead Sea. So if you have thousands of people and they're military men and they're traveling to Jerusalem and it's 25 miles. Again, just a random number here. Let's say you were to walk four miles an hour. You got about eight hours and your enemy's there. So in other words... This is a very pressing situation. A messenger has come, despite Jehoshaphat trying to get everything in order, and says, an enemy is on our doorstep, and it's not just one enemy, but rather it is a group of enemies that have allied together to come and fight against us. Verse 3 says this, And Jehoshaphat was afraid. The more that I study the scriptures, the more that I appreciate the fact that every word is put in there for a reason. And perhaps the last few weeks it stood out to me more than what it typically does. It's a really important point. Jehoshaphat was afraid. Now many times as we read the scriptures, it doesn't tell us those things. Like when Joshua is going out to fight all the men... We don't really have a lot of times by the silence of the scriptures, at least in our minds, it can make these men or these women out to be superheroes, super Christians that are beyond the ordinary. And although their actions are often indicative of extraordinary faith, their composition, their constitution is just like mine and yours. And this story begins to tell us that. That imagine if you were the king, Or perhaps in your own personal life, you are trying to do your best to set life in order and things begin to turn that corner. 
right? If you think of your financial life, if you think of your work life or your family life or your homestead or whatever the things that you're responsible for doing, very often when we inherit something that is chaotic or we find ourselves in a circumstance that is chaotic and then there comes this moment when we have been working and planning and systematically trying to turn the corner where you begin to feel a little bit of confidence because you begin to turn the corner and you feel like you've got your hands on life a little bit. Right after Callan was born and we moved, that took us about nine months. And I remember one day thinking that, like, okay, things are okay, right? And then you always do that, right? Whatever that means. Um, I can remember definitively the day where it felt like it started turning that corner. And then day after day, started feeling better. And then, no doubt you've experienced that moment, You know what I'm talking about? That moment. Where everything's going well and things are on the right direction and you're feeling pretty good. And then something is told to you, something happens, and it's like those things didn't even exist. It's like that progression was not there any longer. And what happens? Well, if you're like a normal human being... Emotions begin to try to take that place to govern who you are. That's how I read this story. Is that Jehoshaphat is beginning to feel like things are in the right place. And then the messenger comes and suddenly he's afraid. Now it's essential for us to pause here. Because... When we're afraid, very often reactive, impulsive, emotional decisions are made. Not necessarily wrong, but not necessarily right either. And yet that's what's so impressive about Jehoshaphat's response. Is that it tells us he feared. And then he does something that I would even contend for the Christian is counterintuitive. The messenger comes and you know your area. You know approximately how long it's going to take this army to get to you. Perhaps he doesn't even know where they're out on en route. And so the immediate emotional response, no doubt from a general, would be ready the troops. And that takes quite some time. They didn't have technology like we do today where they could just radio or call. It was something that had to spread out. They might blow trumpets and they're requiring for people miles and miles and miles away to come in together into Jerusalem to be able to defend the capital city. And so you would think the immediate response would be this. You go ready the troops, I'll go pray. You go ready the troops, I'll call the high priest, I'll have him pray. At least the way my mind works is that I would begin to delegate. Let's have the religious guy do the praying. Let's have these people do this and these people do that. That's the emotional response. And yet those emotional responses ran counter to the former promises of God. And that's a really important point. 
I'm not saying responding immediately in time of emergency is sinful. It's not. Sometimes when your ox is in the ditch, you got to get them out right that moment. What I am saying, when the promises of God have indicated, has commanded us to respond a certain way in a certain situation. And then emotion runs counter to that. Which I would say most of our emotions tend to run counter to the promises of God because of our fallen nature. That we must deliberately choose. And and here's why I think we know that the promise of God was upon Jehoshaphat's mind because in his prayer, that's what he talks about. Here's what it says in verse 3. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah. And Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. Even out of all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the congregation of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. He finds himself in this terrible situation Here's the fascinating thing, is not only does he seek the Lord. I love the wording here, how it actually expresses it. It says this, um, And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord. Now, what I have in a different version that says is this, um, Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set, him, set himself determinedly, as his vital need to seek the Lord. In other words, he made provision for nothing else, only to seek the Lord. I think you would agree with this, especially those of you that are older. You likely remember people who had the spirit of Jehoshaphat. Isn't that what often is lamented about services of days gone by versus services of today is that we recall saints of old and one of the defining qualities and sometimes frankly that can be embellished sometimes we can deify people and they ought not to be because sprinkled along with all of their their good parts were a lot of character flaws but to me that's almost what makes it so exceptional is that they weren't superhuman. I think that's what James in part is doing at the very end of the book of James is he's telling us that the prophets of old were men of like passion, just like me and you. That they feared and they were weak and they were sinful and that they struggled with certain things and that sometimes they overanalyzed and sometimes they trusted in the confidence of themselves or they trusted in the confidence of men rather than God. And certainly it is true that saints all down through history, as much as we might revere them, were plagued with similar faults and sins that beset them just like us. And yet there was an attitude of days gone by. There was a culture of days gone by at times which is to be desired and emulated. And that is this. There comes times in our lives where there are things that are confronting us where we must abandon all the hope that man can offer and set ourselves to seek God alone. There is no subconscious plan B. There is no, if this doesn't work, this is what I'll do. 
There is no, if this doesn't work, I'll just distract myself later so as not to be confronted with the fact that my prayer was not answered. What is enviable about some people from days gone by, and many of you may remember them, is that it seemed like there were many that embodied the spirit of Jehoshaphat. Lord, help us. Notice the next step that he takes. And I think this is a really important one. We live in a very autonomous nation. I want my space. I don't want to share my hardships. As I've thought about that quite a bit, I think that's a form of cloaked pride. It's my opinion. Very often it's a form of pride. God has always had it be where people, his people are together. He's always meant it to be that way. And not together in this fashion necessarily only. Not just that we come and we gather and we are together and we see one another periodically. But the oneness that we have is meant to be a true emotional, spiritual oneness. The things, as it tells us in Corinthians, that hurt you. I am so close to you and I care about you so much. And the things, when I think of my children and I I see them in pain or I see them experience rejection or I see them experience some experience which might lead them to pain, it literally hurts me. You know what I'm talking about. When your child has worked for something and come short. It hurts your heart. If your spouse has tried to to accomplish something, even if it be something relational, to help a parent or to help do any number of things, and you see the thing not going in the trajectory that your spouse wants, and you think about it, it hurts your heart. It affects your mind. I believe everything we read in the New Testament lends itself to that's the nature of the church body. Which takes risk of being judged by people. Which takes risk of displaying weakness, insufficiency, inadequacy, and sin. And yet it is in the expression of those things that knits us together closer. When you see in my life, unlike what the social media world wants to portray, that my life is not perfect. That I struggle deeply with things. And that in order to face those things, I need your help. I need your wisdom. I need your experience. I need your prayer. Jehoshaphat doesn't just go to the temple by himself. He calls all of Judah and says, come and let us pray. Many years ago, probably 15 years ago, I preached a sermon on collective prayer. Something I would encourage you to study sometime. Collective prayer. It's different than individual prayer. And its effects. I'm not going to off the cuff try to give you an explanation, but all I'll say is there seems to be a difference 
in the response of God to collective prayer and individual prayer. Jehoshaphat proclaims a fast. All the people come in sackcloth and in ashes, a tradition at the time which expressed humility and dependence. And Jehoshaphat is a good leader. Let me say this to the men. You need to lead your family in the prayer of your home. You need to be a man and lead. And you may lead in provision and you may lead in protection. But if you do not lead in prayer, those two are distant seconds. What your family needs is a man of God in their home. They don't just need a paycheck. They need someone who can step back from the hurry up of the world and say, this is the priority. We will pray together. Because listen, when your children and when your spouse see your feebleness and weakness before God, it is something that will make an indelible mark on them. That in one sense, when dad goes to face the giants of the world, he has courage and he has integrity. But when he stands before the mighty God, there is something altogether different about that one who he is standing before. Dad is broken and he's afraid and he's reverential and he's purposeful and he mentions my name. Where I can hear it. Jehoshaphat is a good, godly king. And he stands. Now listen, he's not 75 years old and has just naturally gained the respect of the people through his vast experience. He's still a young man in the span of life. But he's a man, as it tells us in chapter 19, who in his heart is trying to do the right thing. Even though he's messing up. And he messed up in a major way. But that did not derail the intentions of his heart. If that's not relatable to you, I don't know what else could be. You strive to do what is right. You fight and claw against all the resistance that you meet both in your flesh and in the world and in the circumstance and by Satan's own demonic forces. You strive and you fail at times, but your heart is continuously being reset upon the goal of being pleasing to the Lord. If you think that a a part of spiritual maturity is that you get past that part, you're mistaken. Nobody spiritually matures to the point where they don't have to reset and refocus upon serving God with integrity in their heart. It's always going to be a battle you and I face. Jehoshaphat does that. All the people to gather together. The best I understand this, and somebody that knows the temple grounds better than I do at this time, because it, it evolves through time to some degree, he's outside where everyone can see him. Now, If you just think of our president or any president that we've had, have you ever seen a president on his knees bowing? Have you ever seen a president on his knees bowing in sackcloth and ashes? Have you ever seen a president not just shed a tear, because I've seen a president do that. Have you ever seen a president bawling his eyes out? 
I haven't. I don't think you have either, likely. And there could be arguments that say, you know what? That expresses weakness. And you want your commander-in-chief to have strength. And I would say, you're right. As he stands before the kingdoms and the kings of the earth, I want him to stand there in strength. But as he stands before the kingdom of the, the king of the universe, helpless and insufficient, there is only one way to stand before him, and that is to bow upon your knees in humility and in need. That's what Jehoshaphat does. He bows before Almighty God in front of all the people. He does not pray a publicly appropriate prayer as we deem appropriate. I want to encourage you, if you're saved, there are times and places for things in public worship. And I recognize that, and I won't get into that this morning. But I want you to know this. It is needful for people to see true prayer in the house of God because it teaches us how to pray. A memory that I hold as dear as any memory that I have is a man who was a member of the church that I didn't grow up in, but the church that I joined thereafter. And I would say, I don't know the frequency, once every four or five months, that's just a guess. He would begin to pray. And the Spirit of God would descend. And we didn't do anything else that morning but listen to Brother Nathan pray. And I was a young man, and I would sit and watch him pray. You know, at first I would, I would pray my normal prayer, and he would say some things, and they would trigger thoughts in my heart, and I would offer a few more prayers to the Lord, and then somebody else might say something, and I would say, yeah, Lord, please remember that as well. And, but there came a point where that display was captivating, and I think there were a number of reasons why it was captivating, and I think many of those are spiritual But one of those that is, in a sense, spiritual, but is also very personal, is that he, in those moments, was vulnerable. You know, the thing about him as a person is that, it's kind of of humorous to many of us, especially when we were younger men, is that his deportment, when he would live life, he, he always looked more like this. Very well put together, he always... Wore khaki slacks and a dress shirt and the way he talked to people. He was very well put together, I guess what we would say, until he would pray. Until he would pray like that. And suddenly all the refined speech and all the appropriate manners left. Because the carnal passed away and it was communing with God. And those displays of true, genuine prayer were some of the most impactful things I observed in all of my childhood. Because when there were times when I got into college and I began to have doubts about things and curious about things and and wonder, you know, is this way, is this whole thing, is it really true, is it made up? Many times my mind would go back to observing that. And I would think, I know what emotion feels like. 
I know what it feels like to stir up emotion. I know what it's like for a man to have a lot of eloquence or to tell a sad story or for a circumstance being related to just twist and mess with my emotions. But what all together is happening at those moments when I was observing him pray was not emotional, though he, he had emotion. There was something supernatural going on. There was a presence among us that he was speaking to God. And I knew from my end there was something self-evident testifying to me, not only that he was speaking to God, but God was hearing what he was saying. Myself, when I hear this prayer from Jehoshaphat, that's what I go back to. That's what I imagine. Preaching, the Bible says, is the power of God unto salvation. It's essential. It's necessary. And I've been in the house of God before where I've seen the preacher get up and it was as though an angel was speaking because I, I felt such power emanating. But witnessing somebody truly pray to me is just an altogether different degree of power because God is involved. And I know God is involved in the other, but I don't know how to express. I'm not going to try, but I think you know what I mean. There is something being striven for directly that is supernatural. The audience is not people. The audience is the Lord. And it only heightens it with the circumstance they found themselves in. Because as you learn in economics, for everything there's a trade-off. So every moment they spend before the Lord is a moment they lose preparing for battle. And so truly, as every moment is passing, the faith required to stay in prayer is more. And the dependence upon yourself is less. Let's look at what he prays. O Lord, God of our fathers, art not thou God in heaven? And rulest not thou over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And in thine hand is there not power and might so that none is able to withstand thee? If you ever want to learn how to pray, I would advise you to look to the scriptures to people who did it. Because it is amazing the things that I learn, the deficiencies in my own prayers, and the instruction I gain from just reading somebody else pray. Notice, first of all, what he did not start his prayer off with. He did not talk about the enemy at first, at all. Now, I'm going to venture a guess here and say that probably the majority of us start with the quagmire we find ourselves in. Heavenly Father, I come to you today because, and then we get going. Here's all of our needs. Here's all of the circumstantial problems that lend themselves towards a good result not happening. And then it's like we just throw God and say, now, figure that out, Lord. Help us, Lord. See, the way that he approaches prayer to me is indicative 
of someone who has firmly set themselves to pray. He's not in a hurry. He's not given to passive understanding. And God, you already know this about yourself, so I'm not going to say it. He doesn't bypass reverence because he's got to get to the next thing. He has set himself towards prayer. And he begins his prayer, no doubt, for multiple, multiple reasons. But he begins his prayer by extolling and, and lifting up the Lord. And in that particular hour, what he specifically identifies to lift up is what they're in need in. So he didn't get to talking about God's omniscience or faithfulness or all these other qualities. But what was upon the forefront of his mind was the fact that an enemy with great might was coming to destroy them. And so interwoven in this prayer of magnifying God to begin is this acknowledgement of his own weakness. And he asked it in forms of questions. Aren't you the powerful God this? Aren't you the one who is able to this? I think the primary reason why he brought that forward is to reverence and honor God. But I think there's a dual benefit to doing that. And that is in moments of crisis, we don't need to be reminded of the lofty truths of the scriptures. We need to be reminded of the foundation. told you a few weeks ago, that's what a good devotional book does. A good devotional book deeply establishes the basic truths about God and His Word. So that when the storm comes, maybe all the ornate decorations have fallen down. But what you care about whenever a storm comes is not the decorations. You care about the foundation. When you begin to speak and utter those things about God. To me, it enlivens a part of my spirit that is often dampened. It reminds me, it reassures me, these things are indeed true. And in those moments, it lessens the power of the fear of my enemy. Suddenly my enemy is not as daunting in view of the fact that God has all power on heaven and earth. When I'm not thinking about God's power in heaven and earth, when I'm only thinking about the power of my enemy, and then I just throw up some prayer to God, like a cookie fortune prayer, and just say, you know what, Uh, God, please help me a little bit. No, but whenever you lay your circumstances down, and you take your eyes off of your enemy, and you set yourselves towards God, And his being comes into full view. The complete opposite happens. Suddenly, it's not that the enemy is the one that's big. It's not the enemy that is powerful. It's not the enemy that can conquer all things. Rather, it's the thing that you have right in front of you. And that is God Almighty. Suddenly, the enemy doesn't seem so big. He first starts... And his prayer is not a depressing one. His prayer is not a hopeless one. His prayer is not some, God, this is my last chance. This is your last chance. God is in full view. And then he does this. He references the past. He references the past. Now, listen, there are people who live in the past, and we ought not to do that. But woe unto us if we're dismissive of the past. 
Let us not be so arrogant, especially as young people, to be dismissive of things that have happened. Because in those things that have happened, it grants us great hope of what can happen. When we consider that God is the same as he was then. That the enemy is not somehow mightier than what it was then. None of that is the case. If you have children who are not living the way that they should, and they have very unique personality traits that in your judgment leaves them hardened. Do you not think it would do you well to hear recounted the stories of people who were just like your children and whom God humbled and were saved and became a valuable asset to the Lord's church? Do you not think if you're plagued with all the ills that can beset us in life through health and what we would call misfortune and that your life is just seems to be constantly running from crisis to crisis to crisis. Do you not think that there have been people both in this generation and the one just before us that had situations of equal, uh, 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 of equal pain as yours or perhaps exceeding yours? Absolutely. Do you not think that spouses or people whom you love that are in a way that you wish they would not be, do you not think that that has all transpired in the past and that God has not intervened and completely changed the situation? But here's what Satan does. He narrows our view. He narrows our view. And that narrowing begins to see our world and only our world. And then we compare the history of our world, our little life, and what has and has not transpired, and then our faith is dependent on what we've seen happen in our little world. And if you've never seen God's miraculous hand touch your family, then guess what? You doubt that he can. And if you've never seen in your little narrow sphere of the world God give great deliverances and break hardened hearts, then guess what? You never consider the fact or, uh, or call out to God in the fashion that he could do that. And that's why it's wise of us to broaden our view. Both through the study of scriptures and through the fellowship of our brothers and sisters. And to listen. It's why it's necessary for our older congregants here to open their mouths and share the deliverances of God and the power of God that you've witnessed and you've heard about in your own life. We need it. We need to know that there is a God who delivers. Even Israel did that for their children, didn't they? They set up monuments. What was the purpose of the monument? It wasn't for nostalgia. That's not why it was. And the aim of your stories should not be to cultivate nostalgia. No, he told us there that let's put these here so that when your children come and ask, what are these monuments? You can tell them about the deliverance of the Lord. 
not about all the personality things, not about all the personal things that meant so much to you, about what God did. That they might see God in a different way than what they are presently seeing him in situations that are distressful. There are some things that can never be compensated. Let me rephrase that. There are some things about inexperiences that cannot be compensated for except through experience. No matter how much spiritual maturity you gain, no matter how much scriptural knowledge you gain, there are experiential things. There's forms of hope and faith which can only be built up and fortified through experience. Let me put it this way. Conceptually, I know God can physically heal people. I know that, conceptually. And I will proclaim that because I believe it to be true. But if you have sat and literally watched God physically heal somebody, it's a game changer. It's a game changer. Because we are not just people of the mind and of the emotion. We are more than that. And sometimes it is experience which teaches the most deepest part of our souls. And so what we need at times to give us that hope is to know what God has provably done. Because there is something when you hear a man or a woman who saw and heard and felt and did, there is something about the conviction and the the belief that it inspires within us that is altogether different than a man getting up and theorizing or declaring doctrine from the Bible. That's why we need to strive to walk with God because it not only just, it does something to the message. Doesn't change the meaning of it. But it does something to the message when you have walked with God. Isn't that the differential today between so many people who get up and preach? You can go to a lot of places and find men who can exegete the text much better than what I can. But many of them are void of the one who wrote the text. Here, Jehoshaphat appeals to God about what God has done. I'm trying to hurry up here. One of the things that he quotes is Solomon's prayer. If you've never read Solomon's prayer and his dedication to the temple, go read it. It is just so beautiful. So beautiful, his prayer of dedication of the temple. And what Solomon did, and I love this, and this is such an example to all of us. What Solomon did when he went and dedicated the temple. I'm not going to read it. It's in 2 Chronicles chapter 6 as part of it. There's multiple parts that you can read in different places throughout the scriptures. In 2 Chronicles, he comes before God and he's, he's asking God's blessing. But he's doing more than that. He's not just saying, God, bless this house. Bless the people that inhabit it. Help this to be a place that honors you. No, what he wanted is that temple to stand until the earth was destroyed. 
and he was forward thinking, and he knew. Solomon was such a wise man, wasn't he? That's what the Bible tells us, wiser than anybody save Jesus. And he knew that the present spiritual state of Israel, which at that moment wasn't too bad, was not forever going to be that way. He knew that there would be kings come that would get puffed up and arrogant, think they didn't need the help of the Lord. And so he begins to pray, and his prayer is not hypothetical in the sense of this might happen, but it was hypothetical in the sense that I know human nature, this is going to happen if you let time go on. And one of the things that he says, he talks about the stranger or the foreigner, he talks about other kings, if this happens with those. But here's what he says in verse 9 of our scripture reading today. And this is what Jehoshaphat is repeating. If when evil comes upon us as the sword, judgment, pestilence, famine, we stand before thy, this house and in thy presence, for thy name is in this house, and cry unto thee in our affliction, then thou wilt hear and help. In other words, he says this, Lord, future generations are going to come. And if when the enemy comes to their gates and is looking to destroy them, Lord, if they will come into this temple, your people, and they will call out to you and set their hearts to want your help more than anything else, God, help them. It's a wonderful thing to know that preceding generations prayed for you and I about this day. That their prayers are still being brought up to God as a memorial on our behalf. And that's what he says. Have you ever prayed for your great, 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 great grandkids? I hope you have. You ought to. Because if God tarries his coming and they're born into this world, you and I both know with the trajectory the world is going, they're going to need God ever bit as much as what we do right now. And maybe God will remember like he did Abraham, like he did David, like he did righteous men of old. At times, God intervened in the present because of the faithfulness and integrity of men in the past. And he did it for their namesake. He offers this before them. It's like he's taking to God. He says, God, when this place was dedicated, this was a promise made. And so we're doing it. We're being faithful. Please hear us and respond. He brings before them who's attacking them. And then I'm going to read verse 12 and I'll be finished this morning. He finishes his prayer by saying this. O our God. Will thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. Young, let me rephrase that, immature Christians try to overcompensate for their immaturity by confidence and assurance. By absolutes, I know this. 
or I guarantee, or this is the way that it is. By projecting a sense of being put together, having a systematic, well-thought-out response, which is usually somebody else's repackaged response. Jehoshaphat has a different form of wisdom here. He has the wisdom that is necessary to prevail in prayer with God. And that is this. Now, there's how historians know this, and I say that term very lightly. There are some historians that say that Israel's army was actually bigger than these three armies put together. And what they try to say is, that's why it's all the more phenomenal that he responded the way he did. Because he said, we have no might against thee, when in fact they did have a might against them. I don't know if that's true or not. It doesn't really change what he does here. But he says, we're not strong enough to fight, and we don't know what to do. Our eyes are upon you. And as I conclude our message this morning I am thoughtful about where we stand as a church we have I would estimate somewhere in the 10 number maybe more that attend on a routine basis that don't know the Lord and we have striven we have many let me stop for a moment we have many who have often lamented the condition of their family, which won't even darken the doors of this church. And the pain of that ebbs and flows. I think the way that Israel responds here is quite the phenomenal template for all of us. Each individual person did not carry that burden alone. They brought it together. And they professed both their lack of strength and wisdom in the present circumstance they were facing. I'm often struck by how powerful that fear is. Fear is a powerful emotion. I don't, I don't unless you really stop and Think, I mean, it's a really powerful emotion. What if my loved one never softens their heart? What if they never come to church? What if my young one that attends church every Sunday, who is weekly getting older and weekly getting more hardened, continues not to respond? What if the messages of the preacher and the testimonies of the people are spiritually diluted? They're not as strong as they used to be, and they're not as powerful as what they once were. Lord, what about all the technology and and entertainment and, and hobbies that so easily distract my kid's mind? What am I to do, Lord? I'm not necessarily prescribing inaction and parenting. But what I am saying is that often it is those fears that we have to let go 
and go and do what this man did and what he said. And that is, Lord, I don't know what to do. And even if I did, I don't have the strength to do it. Our eyes are on you. I love God's response to this man. You got to go read it. I love God's response. He repeats something historical. I love it. I love how he responds to him. So if I tell you the phrase, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, your mind probably goes to the Red Sea, right? I bet theirs did too. Because that's the exact response that the prophet gave. God speaks to a prophet and says, go and tell the people, the battle is not yours, it is mine. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Just as Jehoshaphat brought before him what God had done in the past, God answered by bringing before him what he had done in the past. And what in Jewish history became the archetype of God's deliverance. Like it was the primary example that all through Israel, even to this day, uses as the power of God being displayed. And that is the destruction of the Egyptian army and God's deliverance to the Red Sea. And so God speaks to him and gives the same words, or in other words, the same way I delivered them in an extraordinary fashion, I will deliver you. I love the confidence that they have in that. You know what Jehoshaphat does? They get up. And they're preparing for battle. And you know what he puts on the front lines? The singers. Not the archers. Not the chariots. Not the infantry. He puts the singers that they might worship God when God destroys the enemy. And that's what they begin to do. This morning, they... God confuses everything. The enemies destroy themselves. Israel, excuse me, Judah, did not lose one person. And they came back, and I love this, and this is, again, something that we ought to emulate. They win the battle. God wins the battle. So they went out to the battlefield. Their wives and children left behind. They go out to the battlefield. Their singers are first. Takes them three days once the enemy is destroyed to take all the blessings. You know, that's, that's one of the important truths of the scriptures that we learn is that very often the greatest blessings we ever have are found in the most impossible situations that God delivers us through. What in the moment seems unbearable, God is, is using to work before your eyes. Isn't that what John 9 teaches us about the blind man? This man was born blind that the works of God might be shown in him. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Why? To be an example to all that would come after. And do you not think that perhaps the impossible hardness of your family members, the struggle, the the, the bemoaning that you do in prayer requests here, and you do it over and over, and you pray and you weep, and it is displayed before us. Maybe God is not setting us all up for a great increase in our faith when he delivers from what seems like the impossible. And if you kept it to yourself, you would steal our faith in future days. 
Let it be known when you're carrying a burden. Let us help you. Because we'll help you carry the burden. But then it'll also be like Jehoshaphat. As we walk into the city with every single man that left, Jehoshaphat led the congregation in rejoicing as he walked through the streets of Jerusalem. And let us do the same. When God answers the prayers, when God sees come to pass those deepest desires of our hearts that we've asked our loved ones in this church to carry, let us come back to the house of God and rejoice together. I'll close with this. The story comes to my mind. I don't think of it very often. I should think about it more. Whenever I was saved, whenever I was lost, I've shared with many of you before, my, I had a broken home. Dad and mom were divorced, and that was a very traumatic experience, as I've alluded to before when I was a kid. And so there were times when dad would take me to church at one church, and mom would take me to church at a different church. And so there were times during, so I got to go to both revivals every year, and, and, and both groups of people were praying for me, and both groups of people were not shy about expressing my need for the Lord, if you're getting my picture here. Right? It wasn't uncommon. And I would argue it's a good thing when God is moving you about one of these lost children to encourage them, to speak to them personally and say, I'm praying for you. I love you. And so these people would do that. I was saved on a Sunday morning at the end of a revival at Bethel Church. Bethel Church is about, I don't know, 10 or 12 minutes from that other church. And so we got done with service and we were rejoicing. And then I said, I want to go tell dad. So we jumped in the car. These are days before cell phones, believe it or not. Right? And we jumped in the car and we drove 10 or 12 minutes down the road. And their church had just dismissed. And so people were lined up at an intersection. A whole bunch of the church people. And so my mom pulled over the car. I got out. And all these people got out of their cars. In the middle of an intersection. And I began to tell them what God did for me. Now it wasn't just God saved me. No, these these old men were saying, well tell me about it. So there I was, telling them about it. And then people thought from the church, they saw stuff was going on, so they ran down from the church. And word had gotten back that I had gotten saved. And I'll never forget this older lady of the church that was never shy about expressing her burden for me. And I can still see the picture in my mind of her running down the road, shouting, coming to hug me because of what God had done. You can call that emotion all you want, but what I call that is rejoicing in the deliverance of God. And he deserves it. And there we all were. Oh, here's the cool part. That night we went back to church there. One of the church members did not know this at the time, but he came to find out, had a coworker that lived on that road that saw him outside and called him and said, what in the world was going on today? And so he was given the opportunity to testify about the goodness of God and saving some little boy's soul. I would commend to you 
and courage to you, the spirit of Jehoshaphat. Lord, our eyes are upon you. In revival services, there has been proclivity as of late to put a lot of awful eyes on lost people. Friends, that is misplaced. That is misplaced. They are as helpless, perhaps more helpless, than you and I are. No, what we need is God. That's what we need. So as you begin to be tempted, take away from the sermon. When you begin to be tempted by, and there begins to be this magnetic pull towards thinking about the enemy, because that's what happens. They've been seeking for this long. They haven't been saved. All these things creep in and we begin to just let our eyes and our minds have this magnetic pull towards those things. Be resolved to set your eyes upon the Lord. Pray to Him. My prayer tonight as we go into this revival, Brother Jonathan is intending to be here this evening. Let's pray for him that God would help him to lay out the gospel before us as clearly and as powerfully as has ever been done in this church. Um, That's our message this morning. I pray that God would use it to your good. It's a wonderful story. I'd encourage you to read and study on your own time when you get the chance.